Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Medic Podcast. Podcast. In today's show, I spoke to Dr. Ashish Patel, a principal at the venture capital firm Optum Ventures, which is trying to change the face of healthcare. We discussed the applications of digital health, the fundamentals of venture capital investment, and the golden rules for startup success. Uh, this episode of the podcast uh, was in fact recorded back in August, and, uh, and I started the episode, uh, as always, by asking the question, you know, why he decided to study medicine. So it's, it's a really good question, and I, I wish I had an answer which was, um, you know, uh, it, that it was something I always wanted to do, and uh, you know, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. And the truth is that that's not the case. Um, it was 2003, which tells you a bit about how old I am, and uh, I was finishing up my A-levels, um, so the end of secondary school, for, for audiences who are not from the UK, but finishing up my A-levels, and I, uh, and I needed to pick a profession. The option, and the reason I needed that, frankly, is just like, like lots of people who I think end up going into medicine. Uh, I come from an, from an immigrant family. Um, getting a professional job was something that was just really important to me for the stability, dare I say, the prestige, the finances, and all the rest of it. And I was good at science. And you know, my options were either medicine, law, or accountancy. I'd done a stint in an accountancy office, and I thought it was pretty dull. Uh, and I'd just done a stint in a hospital, and I thought that was pretty cool. So I decided to go to medical school. And um, and I I think what ended up happening was is that I fell in love with medicine and healthcare once I got there. And I would definitely say that healthcare as an industry is just absolutely the right place where I where I wanted to be, even if I didn't realize it at first. Um, and I'm just really lucky that I made that decision. It, it was a, it was one that worked out in the end. But I, I don't have a um, kind of an, an epiphany moment in which I you know nursed someone back to health and realized that. Yeah, for, yeah, for the sake. Uh, so, of course, you know, you graduated from medical school. And, you know, as I understand it, you became an anaesthetist uh, for four years uh, within the NHS. Um, but then sort of somewhere down the line, you, know, you decided to sort of make that jump to work at Babylon Health, to work in a medtech startup. I'm just wondering if you could sort of, you know, explain to listeners, you know, how that sort of opportunity came about and, you know, what sort of influenced your decision to sort of make that leap? I've always taken the view, long, long before I got into any of this, that um, technology can make people's lives better. Right. If I look at the things that I used on my phone today, like technology just made my life better. Like I didn't think there's any denying that. And that goes way back. I mean, the Industrial Revolution made people's lives better. People live longer as a result of it. But if you look at where technologies were built and, and how the technologies have really impacted people's lives on a day-to-day basis and in lots of different industries, they were a lot of them were built by companies. Um, and those companies existed to make a profit. And so I, um, I was always of the belief that you, you can make companies that um, make money and also do good. The two, the two can go hand in hand. And that was just a, a view that I held even when at medical school. I, I didn't, didn't think that just because someone was running a company, it necessarily meant that they couldn't do good in the world, right? Um, and and when, I was, when I was a doctor, I realized that um, one of the things that was, you know, one of the joys of working in the NHS is that you, you get to serve patients and you, you get to look after people without having to worry about any of the money side of things, because there's almost like impurity in terms of just being an employee of a large system that takes care of everything. Um, but it also means that as a result, you there isn't much room really to innovate. At least there wasn't then when I was there. This is back in 2010 to 2014 when I was an NHS doctor. Like innovation really wasn't a thing. And if you saw things that weren't being done well, it was kind of like, hey, that's just the way it's done. And you just got to learn to live with it. And um, 
And if, if you're the kind of person that looks at something that's broken and wants to try and fix it, it was a tough place to be. Um, I think that's changing now. I think there's definitely more innovation programs. Um, and there are things like the NHS Clinical Entrepreneurs Scheme and the National Health Accelerator for companies. And there's loads of great stuff now, which is really pleasing to see. But back then, there was nothing. And so I always had that twinge that if you wanted to um, make healthcare even better, the best place was to do it was probably in a company. And that company should probably try and make some money. Um, and um, and I, I'd gone around looking for, for ways I could go about doing that. Um, and I looked at farm, like pharma. Um, some of my friends went into farm subsequently, but that just didn't. It didn't look like the right fit for me. I, I guess I've, I'm, I'm kind of my, uh, kind of a small company guy by mentality, right? I just like my, my getting my hands dirty, being in the trenches, and I still like. Doing that. And, um, I, I just, it, for me, it didn't quite fit being in a, you know, a massive organization like that. Um, the, the, the other thing was, quite frankly. Um, uh, if you looked at the, the types of innovations that were having a big impact in your life outside of medicine, they were in software. Like, um, and you know, at the time, although that again, that has all changed, but at the time, that pharma and software just wasn't a thing. Like, um, and digital health, I mean, the phrase digital health didn't even really exist. We were still calling it mobile health or M health or e health. This is what no one knew what to call it. Um, and then I came across this guy who was uh, I was introduced by a friend of mine, and I came across this guy who um, uh, who was starting Babylon Health, a guy called Ali Parts, who's the CEO, and he he'd had some success as an entrepreneur building a very large chain of um, hospitals in Europe, um, and and I just thought this was somebody who could teach me about how you build these kinds of businesses that are impactful and can can make a profit, yes, but also do some real good and do things in a better way, which will ultimately benefit patients and, and everyone. So um, it, it seemed like a it seemed like a really good opportunity just to jump in. Um, I, I I did some consulting for them at first um, and and got kind of got a feel for things. This was alongside my medical work at the time. And then when I came to a kind of a natural pause point where I either would go into my next phase of training, which would last another three years or four years before I became a consultant. Um, or take a break, as I thought of it then, I figured, look, I'm never going to get a second chance to do something like this. So just do it. And so I left my medical training. I never went back to it. And I ended up going full time into Babylon. Um, and I, I, I was responsible for product R&D. So I was responsible for thinking about how we could push the boundaries of technology and how that could be used to deliver meaningful products that benefit doctors and clinicians and patients. Um, I did a lot of work on early forms of AI, um, chatbot technologies, um, even just data analytics platforms to look at the different types of medical data that you could capture from a mobile phone. Um, I got a real feel for how to build and ship products in different countries, uh, which was a fantastic education. Uh, and then uh, and then from there, I, um, I realized I really loved um, building not just products in healthcare, but businesses in healthcare. Um, and Babylon is definitely Ali's business. Like he's just, he's, you know, that's his, that's his baby. And he's, he's done an incredible job with that company, but uh, I wanted something of my own. And I realized that, um, the, the, the way, the thing I was missing in all of this was I didn't really understand the finance of it. Like I'd, um, I'd never gone to business school, never done an MBA, never studied any kind of finance really. Like most med students in the UK, you know, finish your A-levels, um, go to university and kind of stay on the straight and narrow most of the time. Um, and so it, it, to me, it made sense that if you're going to learn how to build businesses, you've got to understand how you finance them. So then I decided to join a venture capital business and thought, well, if I, I could probably learn about financing on the fly as well. And so I, um, I joined 
what was then a very small VC firm called Mercia Technologies, as it was then. It's now called Mercer Asset Management. And that business really grew. And I was responsible there for healthcare investing, as well as helping to grow the business through acquiring other fund managers. And again, that was another incredible journey, three, three years of just learning how you build a financial services business. And I ended up basically falling in love with healthcare investing, which is what I do now. Uh, so, of course, you know, you are now a principal at, uh, at Opson Ventures. Uh, so how do you sort of go about, you know, valuing a company and how do you decide whether a company is worth investing in? I think you look at that kind of problem the other way around. Firstly, you figure out whether it's worth investing in. And then the valuation piece, although um, kind of founders and people in finance get really hung up on valuation, in my mind, that's that's just the maths and the accounting of doing a deal. But the, the first question is, is do I want to do the deal, right? So you know, is, there, is there something here that I believe will, will grow and that I want to be a part of? Um, and so that, I always start from that approach, which is, um, firstly, do I want to invest in this company? And then secondly, on what terms? And the valuation would be the terms piece. But perhaps if we pick up the first bit first, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, that the purpose of venture capital is to invest money into businesses at the early stages of their development, where traditional sources of financing, like getting a loan from the bank or something like that, isn't going to work out because there's so much risk in what you're doing that the person lending you the money might might never see it back again, and they just can't afford to take that kind of risk. So, so venture capital typically invests in early stage, high growth, high risk businesses. Um, and so the, the, a lot of the analysis of the venture capitalist or the VC is really is there a reward big enough here to justify the risk that I'm taking? So am I investing in something that if it works, is going to be absolutely tremendous and it's going to have been worth all the effort we put in? Or am I investing in something where even if it works, it's not going to be absolutely huge and therefore um, I'm not going to make a massive return, which means that it probably wasn't worth taking that level of risk. That's the core question at the heart of VC investments. Um, and, and really, a lot of our time goes into assessing, firstly, just the size of the opportunity. So is this the problem they're solving? Is it a common problem, a big problem? Is it a problem that people will spend money on a solution for? Um, uh, how much will those people spend? How many of those people are there? What is the value of what you're creating? And you really look for big problems where people will spend money for a good solution. And then the second thing is then around um, the... The, the team and the people who are going after that problem, because we can say it all day, just pointing to big problems in the world that people will spend money on, right? But you know, do you do you believe that these people have um, and it, some unique? And I mean unique in the unique is a word that's overused generally, you know. But um, genuinely unique um, attributes that makes them possibly the only people in the world who could solve this particular problem in this particular way. So does that mean that they have um, experience from the industry? Do they have, uh, have they thought of a technological approach, which no one else has thought of? Do, do they look like the kind of people who are going to work really hard and really stick with a problem? You know, it's, it's fun to raise money and get on the cover of TechCrunch, but it's really hard work as well. And so do these people have the grit to stick with it? So we spent a whole bunch of time speaking to entrepreneurs, getting to know them, getting to understand the depths of their characters and their motivations and what makes them unique as well as people. 
And then, and then we can delve into some of the finer details around, you know, the technological approach. Is there technology which is patented or in some way defensible? Um, are there competitors who are taking a similar approach? What makes this company different to competitors? There's loads of, there's a long tail of, you know, endless questions you can ask. But the, the first two questions really are always, it, what is the market for this that you're going after? How big is it? And secondly, um, what are the people like? And if you, if you get a good feel for those two things, then it kind of makes sense to spend time understanding the more nuanced details as well. Uh, so we're at a stage where you know, companies are being valued you know, so highly right now. So how has that sort of influenced your investment style? I mean, look, the, 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 the thing is, is if you are, if you're going after a big enough problem and you win, everything looks cheap. Right. So, you know, if, if if you were to invest in an Amazon, you know, twenty years ago, it almost didn't matter what the valuation was. It's it's going to look cheap today compared to compared to what you're going to have to pay today to get in. So, so um, I, I think I think that's the first thing to say, which is why it really matters that you're looking at companies that are solving big, important problems that are economically impactful. Um, the the second thing is, you know, a lot of money has been raised for venture capital. Um, I'd argue actually that there it's still not as much as could be raised with venture capital. There's still more slack in the system. Um, and I say that because there are mutual funds that have, um, which are like pension funds, which have more assets under management than the entire venture capital industry. So like, there, you know, there are, it's still a relatively niche form of financing. It's not a mass, as massive an industry relative to the amount of media attention it gets. Um, because more money is poured into the industry, that means more money has to go out, which means that firms are um, more willing to pay a higher price because they've got to make the investments. And so sitting on a pile of cash doesn't really help them make a return. So so yes, valuations, I think it's that's just empirically true, have risen over the last period of time faster than the rates of inflation. Therefore, companies have got more expensive. Um, but there are other things to consider. I think that the, the, the for the right companies solving the right kinds of problems, it, even investing at the current market valuations, there's still scope to make fantastic returns. Um, and, and, and that is simply because those companies are solving really important problems that matter to a lot of people, and those people will pay for the solutions. Uh, now, are there any sort of companies which you're you know, really excited about uh, at the moment in this sort of digital health space? Yeah, I, I think there's a, whole, there's a whole range of really interesting businesses. I think, you know, take a step back and just look at the state of technology and where it is right now and you just realize that so much can be done with technology that isn't being done um so you know digital therapeutics is is becoming an increasingly interesting and important space um we're investors in so at the time of recording there's two digital therapeutics businesses one called kaya which is a a munich-based um computer vision company that uses your mobile phone to to provide a solution for back pain um, as well as some other uh, indications conditions. And then I, I've um, recently invested in a company called Oxford VR, which is a digital therapeutic business that uses virtual reality technology to deliver therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for patients with mental health and behavioral health problems. Um, you know, both of these companies are blending clinical expertise um, and knowing what the right thing to do for, for a patient is with state-of-the-art technology, which didn't exist you know, four or five years ago. Um, and, and that has that creates an incredible opportunity to deliver patient care in a new way and in a highly efficacious way, which yields incredible clinical results. So um, the industry as a whole is therefore growing. And I think that's a really exciting space 
um, you know, in general. Then you can look at other types of businesses, and we've we've um, we've invested in companies which sit more on the operational side. So they are healthcare IT companies which support hospitals and insurance companies um, and clinicians and sometimes patients as well. But they do more of the administrative tasks of healthcare. You know, you think about how automated um, banking is and how much uh, how much audit work can be done at the press of a button. And you contrast that to, you know, you go to your local hospital, there is an entire department of people sitting there doing clinical coding, you know, with paper notes. So these healthcare IT businesses are helping to digitize that. And what that does is it allows you to free up people to do work where human beings are better than machines. Um, the work is done more accurately, faster, cheaper. So there's you know, lots of advantages there. And again, that, that whole segment of almost process automation in, in healthcare um, and on, the, on the administrative side, hugely exciting. And there are some really cool companies operating in that space too. Uh, now, there are quite a few students listening uh, who are possibly interested in pursuing a startup in the future. Uh, so what sort of advice would you give to them? You, you can't let your fear of failure trouble you more than your hunger for success. Like if, if that's the, if that's, you know, for some people that's the case, right? They worry more about the failure and, you know, the stigma and what will people say and all that kind of stuff more than they want success. And that that's cool. Like if, if that's the way you're built, then that's where you're built. Um, but then you probably shouldn't go around trying to build early stage venture back businesses. Um, there, there are other things you should do with your life where the risk of failure is much, much lower and you'll never have that stigma of failure. Um, and you'll probably be happier that way. But it, you, you have to go into this business not not being um, happy with failure because I don't think anyone's really happy with failure, but but knowing that it's a risk and it's a risk that you're prepared to manage, right? And so um, and and you know there are things which you can do to try and reduce that risk of failure and increase the risk of success, and there are things which you just can't do, and some things are just going to hit you out the clear blue sky, and there'll be nothing you can do about it, and you live with that uncertainty. But the 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 flip side of that is that you you have the potential for extreme reward be it through impact, be it through, you know, changing the way a field works or patient outcomes are delivered, and yes, financially as well, right? So it's, they're just two sides of the coin. Um, I, I would say to students who are, or anyone really thinking of starting a business is, um, you know, firstly, just have an appreciation of how hard it's going to be to get it off the ground and how hard you're going to work, Um and you, when you say you're going to put your all in, I mean, you don't clock off. Most of these CEOs work flat out. Um, and there's a whole conversation to be had about whether that's the, the right thing from a mental health perspective or the things we can do to reduce workplace stress for people. And I think we should do those things. Um, but the bottom line is building something new is a lot harder than being an employee at somewhere existing. So, um, so you're just going to have to get used to that. The second thing is, is surround yourself with really smart people, um, smarter people than yourself. The best CEOs I've seen um, they're not the smartest person in the business. They're, they've got a, they've got people who work for them, a, a CTO, a chief technology officer, chief operating officer, whatever the other functions are in the company. But actually, their their number two person is the smartest person around, and they have a smart, an even smarter number three and an even smarter number four. What that means is, is that you don't you don't carry the pressure of having to be the one who knows everything. You've got some really good people around you who know more than you, and they can they can shoulder some of that burden. Um, you don't have to be the subject matter expert, absolutely everything. It's impossible to be the best software programmer, the best nephrologist, and the best marketeer if you're a disease company, for example, right? Can't do all. So getting comfortable with the fact that you're going to bring on people who have expertise you don't have and 
you're going to have to lean on them is a really big game changer, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, I'd really appreciate if you'd give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, with all the links in the description below. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and take care.